Listener production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool, and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and yep, the real stuff. And that's exactly the aim of this podcast. We're going to bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. And today's guest is someone who really knows what's going on and for the first time actually gives the good oil a double meaning, especially at a time when energy prices and energy availability is well and truly in the news. Andrew Purcell, among other things, is the executive chairman of oil explorer and hopefully producer, Melbana Energy. Andrew, welcome to the good oil. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Mate, really appreciate you taking the time. Look, there's a, a short backstory to this. We have a, a mutual acquaintance and he was chatting to me about the company and we, you and I had a, had a quick chat and I thought, you know what, this, this conversation was just really fascinating and I thought it needs to be shared with more people. So, mate, thank you for spending a bit of time with us, particularly, uh, as I said, at a really, really critical time, uh, a really topical time too when it comes to oil and gas. We'll talk about Melbourne, we'll talk about the oil industry, we'll talk about what's going on, but maybe, mate, we just start straight up with what exactly, for someone who works in the industry, what exactly is happening in the oil and gas space right now? Why are we paying such high petrol prices, mate? Well, you have a very long lead time to bringing new supply on in any commodity, really, but in oil and gas particularly. And in addition to that long lead time, what you've had over the last, let's say, 10 years, 10 years ago, oil prices were in the dumps. And so you didn't get that price reaction to wanting to invest in new exploration. And by the time the price recovered as a natural result of not investing in new supply, demand doesn't go anywhere. Demand continues to increase. We then had this headwind of let's make a difference to the world's environmental footprint and let's get away from fossil fuels and let's get into renewables. And that got a huge support from populations and therefore governments, which meant that money that might have otherwise gone into the sector in response to an increasing price didn't. And so now you're seeing many, many billions of dollars being made by the big oil companies in this high oil price environment. You're not seeing the price triggering the investment back into the sector. So you've got a structural deficit in supply and you've got increasing demand, particularly because the renewables revolution is taking longer and is going to take longer to implement than people optimistically initially expected. That's fascinating because it's not the answer I expected, at least in whole. I thought there might have been some mention about the war in Ukraine, some Russian gas and oil. How, how much of that is is at play in your view, or is it, or is it just completely coincidental? Uh, it, look, it, it, it's not coincidental. I think, you know, the supply of gas out of there into Europe, but what, what we're seeing now is a price reaction was happening anyway. What you're getting now because of Russia and Ukraine is a little bit of a boot up the backside as well into the oil price. It would happen anyway. Interesting, interesting. Okay. And uh, I've got to ask, I suppose, in that scenario, there are plenty of big businesses, particularly you mentioned the big majors who are making a squillion dollars right now. That was my word, not yours. I think you said billions, but either way, they're, they're probably indistinguishable for most people. Um, what's the what's the story there? I mean, you, I would have thought those guys have the heft capacity and frankly, shareholder uh, interest and, and remit to go and actually find, drill, extract additional supply to make up for that. Um, am I hearing market failure? Am I hearing investor disinterest? Am I hearing different expectations around cash flows from some of these big companies? When you get to the size of a 
Fortune 500 company, and even it's like the Fortune 500, you know, the big the big oil and gas companies. On there, these companies are few in the world, and when you manage hundreds of billions of dollars, like the big fund managers in the world do, you become a very influential and significant player on the register of these companies. And a number of these big fund managers in the world have gone ESG boots and all in in the last few years, and they have made it very clear that the people that invest in them, therefore, they where they invest, you need to follow these ESG guidelines you know, for environmental, social governance. And, and now, you've got that having happened, you don't turn these big ships on a dime. And these companies are going in that direction and they have invested heavily in renewables and wind farms and carbon capture and storage. And they're not playing a one-year, two-year, five-year, 10-year game. They're playing the game to be by 2050 at the point where the world's Western democracies, at least, have said, we want to be carbon neutral by that time. Mm. And in the short term, we're seeing those supply squeezes because we've stopped investing in new oil. We've investing, we're investing in the future. In air quotes, I'm, I'm not. I'm sensing some skepticism from you, but I'll, I won't put words in your mouth. Uh, but in that journey, there is there is a valley between you know plenty of oil and then plenty of renewables in the middle. Maybe that's where we're caught right now. Is that is that a fair summary of what you just talked about? Uh, it is, uh, Scott. And look, I, I didn't mean to give the view that I'm uh, a skeptic. I'm agnostic, and it's not my job. My shareholders don't invest in. A company like me to, to read the crystal ball of the future, I go to where I can make money for our shareholders. And at the moment, for the next 10 years, I see a great opportunity to make money in, in hydrocarbons because you know, the IPCC, the uh, EIA, you know, this is the, you know, all these international bodies that are looking at this issue of net zero and, and emissions, all of their baseline studies show gas and oil will continue to increase in demand uh, out to 2050. And yet no one is, not enough people are doing the work and finding new supply. So so you do the math, you do the math. That no, makes perfect sense. But let's let's get back to oil in a minute. I want to start with your, not start with you, we've already started, but I want to get back to you. Um, you are both the executive chairman of Melbourne. You've been there for seven years in that role. You're the chairman of AJ Lucas, the engineering services mob for uh, I think eight or so years. But you've had a really long and, and very varied uh, background. You've worked in Australia, you've worked in Thailand, you've worked in Indonesia, Hong Kong. You've kind of been around the world. How, how do you? How do you? What's the What's the Andrew Purcell story career wise uh, from from the Queensland University of Technology where you started to to executive chairman of Melbourne? What's What's the uh, What's the short version of, of that journey? Soundbite. I'm an engineer. I grew up in Queensland. I did a degree in electronics engineering. I worked as an engineer for five years for an English group who sent me around the world doing various projects. I did an MBA, came back full time, went uh, from an MBA in finance to working in banking. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the mid '90s, and there was, uh, you know, <laughs> banking. Yeah, it was, and there was, you know, fifty percent of the people I worked with at Credit Suisse were, you know, had degrees in maths and science and engineering, and the other fifty percent were economics and, you know, commerce and that sort of thing. And and you know, the, the bit of the bank I worked in, you know, put me in Hong Kong and sent me around emerging markets to finance mostly resource projects. So when you say I worked in Thailand and in India and Indonesia, that was all with Credit Suisse. And I was sitting on the boards of companies we and our clients had invested in, helping resource projects to get developed, working on emerging market risk, commodity offtake, hedging, funding. And from there, I stayed in Hong Kong for many years after I left Credit Suisse, doing that on behalf of you know, some very uh, well-resourced uh, individuals around Asia. And finally, the kids got a bit older, came back to Australia, 
and uh, put them into school here and, 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 and invested in some companies I liked that were in the space that I thought long run, there's going to be a price reaction to the way the world is under investing in commodities, particularly fossil fuels. And I want to be in that place. It makes perfect sense, I suppose. If you've got an engineering background that you spend a lot of time raising capital, you're probably, you're probably born or at least made uh, for, for the sort of organisation you're in now where both of those things remain remarkably important as a, as a small player. And we'll talk about Melbourne itself in a second. But as a small player, um, you know, you've, you've got to be both uh, very good at finding and, and establishing those resources at the same time, I suppose, the ability to raise some funds to, to work on the financing. That's, how, does, how does that kind of break down? If you think about your, your day job as the executive chairman of, a, of an explorer, and we'll talk about Melbourne in a sec. I keep saying that. We will get back to there. Um, what, what's, what's your day? I know, I'm sure no two days are the same, but, but what's your day look like? How's your, your time split up? What, is, what does Andrew Purcell do uh, Monday to Friday? Well, let me start by saying, and and this is a trite saying used by companies all over the world, but I really am only as good as the people around me. The the geoscience team in Melbourne, they are decades of experience in big oil, ExxonMobil, in the new ventures team. So their job was to scour the world for one of the world's largest oil companies, figure out where the next opportunity is, and then sell that internally in their organization. So they've been with us for over 10 years. And that means when they come up with an idea, it gets me in the door to some of the world's biggest oil companies, new ventures teams. And then when I'm in that door, my background in banking, you know, one thing banking does teach you is that you just get shit done, right? You know, one step after the other, one foot in front of the other, just keep doing it and you get stuff done. And I'll get, a, I'll get a deal closed if I can start with a good product. And we've done it many times together. So now we are, that's our model. We find the projects, we bring in majors we, to partner us and help us fund it. But Monday to Friday, now we have a project going. You know, we've got this drilling program going onshore in Cuba that started September of last year. We've brought in a, a national oil company as our partner. The national oil company of Angola is the uh, second largest oil producer in Africa. So we've got this massive state behind us funding most of the operation. We're the operator, so we're running it like a little guy. But um, my Monday to Friday is when I'm in Australia, you know, every 7 a.m. every morning, we have the operations update meeting with Cuba, which is the end of their day. Uh, I then come to work and I have my day job here in Australia, you know, being chairman of this company and also Lucas. And then uh, I'll get a you know, late afternoon to mid-evening, try and get some dinner and a nana nap in. And then usually about 10 or 11 p.m. in the evening, Cube is coming back in and we have the morning meeting with the team over there and, and, and manage the day's issues. But, you know, I've got a full engineering operations team over there. I've got a full geoscience and administrative team around me here. There's a lot of people helping me to do what I do and I just try and, you know, not sleep in a day and stay on top of everything. I was going to say that, that's a, that's a brutal time frame when you've got to be available at the end of their day and then the beginning of their day, uh, you get to sleep while they're awake or where they're at work. And other other than that, sounds like you're uh, it, it sounds like a pretty full on week. I tell you what, I quite liked COVID. I know I shouldn't say that out loud to publicly, <laughs> but it did that. allow me to get mid-afternoon nano naps in when I couldn't come to the office. <laughs> Everyone's adjusting, I think. Everyone's adjusting. Apparently, the shaver shop sales went through the roof and about to go back to the office and, uh, and, and make us look presentable again too. But uh, yeah, mate, so, so okay, that's, that's the story. Let's go, to, let's go to the oil and gas exploration space. You've, you've alluded to some of this already. Um, the, the, the potential underinvestment or, or under-resourcing of some of this. Um, there are plenty of, of 
businesses, and I'll say like you, I don't necessarily mean they're all the same, but plenty of companies out there trying to find the next big resource. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of money to be made by those who manage to do it successfully. No shortage of people looking for it. And you mentioned two two things, each of which is worth drilling into, no no pun intended. Uh, Firstly, onshore, and secondly, Cuba. Because the, the you know, I'm, I'm no oil and gas expert. I, I mentioned this to you when we've spoken before. But um, the general view would be, how is there any onshore gas left, or oil and gas, sorry, left to, to be exposed and, and, and exploited? And then secondly, Cuba. So let, let's do that in order. And maybe, maybe the answer is actually the same, given, given Cuba is Cuba. But uh, onshore oil and gas, mate, I, I've got to assume you're one of the very, very, very few organizations still looking for and potentially finding large deposits actually onshore. Yeah, it's, it's, it's where you want to be, Scott. Onshore is if it, it, there's a plus and a minus. Onshore is much easier to operate. It's much cheaper to operate. It's much it's much quicker to adapt to your drilling program. When you're designing an oil and gas well, or or a mine or whatever, there's like a three to five year lead time where you're planning it, your logistics, your supply chains, your inventories, and then you find something and you it maybe isn't quite what you want. You've got to adapt on the fly. And if you're offshore on a platform, adapting on the fly is it, it is it is almost impossible. Uh, onshore, you can adapt on the fly, and so everybody would prefer to be onshore. But you're quite right. You know, the, it's very rare in the world today to find plays that are onshore that also satisfy a number of other things that are important. There's the early filter. Do I want to be in a place where the government turns over every three years in a violent revolution? Therefore, I probably won't be able to keep anything I have. No. Do I want to be in a place where it's on a border dispute between two big countries that are going to fight over anything? No. So you then whittle it down very quickly to countries that, you know, we looked at, you know, what are your specialties in the in the geology and and the Gulf of Mexico is one of the world's great hydrocarbon systems. The Gulf of Mexico has and will produce a lot of oil. The problem is it's very deep water. It's big boy stuff. But as you move through the Gulf of Mexico, Cuba has the same source rocks as the Gulf of Mexico. They've just been thrust up. And then but to the south, you've got the world's largest oil reserves in Venezuela, a very typical common quality of oil to what Cuba's got. But Cuba's, you know, perfect. It's onshore. It's got a active hydrocarbon system. It produces 50,000 barrels a day. It has got enormous prospectivity. It has suffered chronically from underinvestment, not just for the reasons I've given you in the last 10 years, but for the last 50 years because of the US sanctions against that country. So as an Australian company of our size, going in and getting a footprint of a of an acreage the size we did with active working hydrocarbon system never would have happened if we hadn't had the sanctions of the US against Cuba. So that's what took us in there after after filtering through all those other commercial sifting criteria and it's a good jurisdiction, the fiscal terms were fair, the arrangements were acceptable to us for cost recovery and the and the state is very supportive and the people are very educated and very keen for foreign investment and with my experience of emerging markets over the years, Cuba's come out very favorably. It's uh, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, you, you talk about, I guess you know the, the the reality is that the easy to access 
I'll say favorable or most favorable countries geographically, you know, democratically or at least governance wise. I mean, a lot of these, the easy stuff's been got to, right? I guess that's almost the point. That's why companies going further and further offshore having to go deeper and deeper because that's where the next best deposits are found. And as you say, uh, both maybe oil and Cuban cigars are, are cheaper than they would be and more available to, to us than they might be uh, had, uh, <laughs> if the US sanctions were removed. So there's, there's some positives. Uh, we, I don't mean to make light of the sanctions, but there are some positives for, uh, for, for oil and gas drillers and for, and for cigar aficionados alike. Mate, <laughs> let, let's, let's go to that. I guess, you know, maybe you can talk me very quickly through, as, as a small business, you can't be everywhere. You can't look, or maybe you have looked everywhere. But when you start with a, with a globe, you, know, you, you spin the globe on the desk and say, where do we start? And then you end up putting really serious dollars, yours and, and a partner's, into a particular drilling operation in a particular country for a particular purpose, as you say, um, with that geology. How does how does Melbourne, how does anybody start with we've got some cash we've got some know how we can go anywhere you can't be everywhere you can't even necessarily maybe you can analyze everywhere how do you go from I wonder what we should do to Cube is the place let's let's start the let's start the exploration what what's that process like for an explorer uh, it begins with the the where is the commodity we think and and you let the geos go for it. And they have special expertise in different types of geology. So they're going to focus on the parts of the world where they understand the rocks better than someone else. So when, when we did that process, like for Cuba, you know, the, the heavily folded geology zones in the world are like, um, well, our own Cuba Basin in, in Australia, the PNG, uh, Myanmar, Iran, um, Cuba. And so you say, okay, here's this grab bag of countries where they think and they have been and found oil before and think there's another way to do it. Well, I can pretty easily and quickly on that list knock off a couple. I'm not I'm not going into Iran with UN sanctions against there. That that's different to just having US sanctions against Cuba. When you've got UN sanctions, that means everyone who's in the club, you know, has to play by the rules. I'm not going to go into Myanmar, although we did look at it quite closely. It was quite interesting because uh you know, I don't you know, I know this is going to the air and I don't want to make enemies in countries I don't need to, but you know. You know, military juntas, governments are always a bit less comfortable unless you're a bit punchier out there. Uh, and then PNG has its uh, logistical challenges. So at, apart from anything else, you know, you're not operating a nice flat country close to the coastline as you are in Cuba. You know, you're 4,000 metres up and uh, drilling these huge wells that cost $100 million the helicopter, all the rig and equipment up there. And then you're into Africa. Africa is great, you know. But then again, it's, you know, it's got challenges too, right? So balancing the fiscal terms, the geological attractiveness and the security implications and the logistical issues, you, you blend all that up together with your experience of having done, and let's face it, failed in projects around the world before and you say, okay, well, that would have worked but for that problem. Okay, next time I'll try and minimise that problem and, you know, here we are 30, 40 years later. And then, you know, having a crack at something and hopefully, hopefully now having got it right. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, as we do, maybe you take me to the next step because at some point you say, right, the geos reckon Cuba is the place to go. It looks like a good place. We'll go and start the conversations. Um, uh, the, the skeptic in me, not 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 of, of you guys or of oil and gas generally, but just the general kind of, may, maybe I'm just risk averse, I'm not sure. I'm thinking, hang on, if there's something really there, someone else has looked at it already. Someone else has been there already. Someone else has either, you know, you know the, 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 it's very rare that someone has the first best idea ever. 
you know, oh my goodness, there might be oil in somewhere like Cuba is not a, a, a thought that I assume has evaded every other geologist in the world ever. And someone at Melbourne has gone, hey, no one's ever thought about Cuba, maybe Cuba. Uh, someone will have thought about it. Someone will have dismissed it or, or maybe just had better ideas or, as you say, because the Yanks can't go there, that's, a, that's its own opportunity, I suppose, for Melbourne. Uh, but how do, you, how do you guys think through that idea of uh, being confident enough to say, we've got to go and find somewhere new, but also in the back of your head, the fact that you figure someone's probably looked at everything you're looking at at the same time and either dismissed it or hasn't bothered proceeding with it. Is there any part of it, that the, is there any room for that idea of, are we sure we're really seeing something that no one else has seen yet? Or do you have to just say, we've got to trust our, our science, trust our guys and go and look where they think there's, there's decent oil? I, I think there's absolutely a, a history of people having done what we've done and included Cuba in their mix. There would be some commercial manager equivalent to me <laughs> sitting in sitting in Repsol or Total yeah, right. or ExxonMobil yeah. who would have put his little list together that his geos threw up yeah. and said, "Okay, bang, 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 filter, 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 Cuba." Well, that could be quite interesting, and mm, it gets mm. percolated up to the exploration <laughs> committee or the board, and yeah. they go, "You're joking me, aren't you? No way." We're not, you know. Okay, so. You know, a French company might go, look, I know we're not subject to US laws, but hey, you know, we've got such a vertical and horizontal expanse of business globally. Let's not poke Uncle Sam in the eye, right? We won't go there. We've got something as good over here in West Africa, which is closer to home, and let's do that. And you've had Total and Repsol all operate in Cuba, but offshore back in those days. Offshore was where the oil and gas game was because, you know, the other problem um, that we haven't touched on, you think, well, what are, what are these risks and why would you go there and hasn't someone thought of it before? Is look, We're doing projects in developed countries too. You know, We've got projects here in Australia that is being drilled early next year, offshore northern Australia. We sold to this uh, US company, which we can talk to, and we've got this other project with my other hat on we're doing in England uh, for the last couple of years, spent £100 million on it. it. Getting a project done, not just oil and gas, but particularly oil and gas, Getting any project done in a developed market now is extremely difficult. You know, there's so much social opposition, landowner opposition, environmental opposition, and governments governments listen to loud voices when you're in a balanced democracy that can get tilted one way or the other so quickly. So that they change the rules on you. And so you can raise all this money, do all this work, and try and get to the point of develop, de delivering for your shareholders what you said you would do and then suddenly someone pulls the rug out under your feet you know there, there's the risk of the developed world it doesn't exist so much in the emerging markets it's funny isn't it you know we and I'll, I'll put myself in this category we, we we are familiar with our own uh circumstances so strongly that we don't see the risk that we take for granted and we see difference as risk and i think there's probably something to your experience having been around the world for a couple of decades in terms of having seen those things from different perspectives as you say most people listening are probably thinking gee drilling for oil is risky drilling for oil in cuba is risky but England would be fine or, or you know, somewhere else would be fine. And as you say, those developed markets where the rules can actually change for very different reasons, not necessarily better or worse, but we kind of take those things for granted because we kind of think, well, that's us and, and we aren't risky, but they are risky. The us and them stuff becomes even, not, not consciously even, but just a, a really interesting way to think about it. So I, I absolutely understand that, that process. But let, let's go to Cuba then. So, so you, you say, right, we think there's something here. Uh, the geos like the deal. You talk to the Cuban government and whatever else happens in the, in the background. You get to a point where you're like, you know what, we think this is a goal. We've got some funding. Um, can, you, can you kind of take me through the timeline and, and not in heaps of detail, but the process of going from we think X marks the spot. We feel like we've got a, a, a circum set of circumstances that we 
can do I won't say profitably because you still don't know whether you're going to strike oil uh, but but you've got you've got a, a set of criteria that you feel like are, are an attractive risk reward proposition how long does it take? What do you have to do from there? Uh, and then tell us how the Cuban operation went and kind of what, what happened as you as you went through that. All right, you've got to get comfortable then. That's a long, that's a short <laughs> give us, question. Give us the short version. <laughs> that, that leaves a long answer. Uh, I would say it's been 10 years since uh, some somebody first put the opportunity in front of us. And then, then it took us three years to, you know, kick the tire and nut out a commercial agreement um, with uh, the people that, uh, flagged it for us. Then in 2000, and in parallel, we talked to the Cuban government. You have to be qualified. You have to, you know, go through an interview process, basically. Uh, by 2015, we were awarded a 25-year contract over this block of land. Um, following that, we did all of our geological studies and assessments, and that began by gathering data. You know, they they have a, an industry that works in one particular way. What we have is an expertise to understand their rocks. But that began by gathering all their data, all the previous vintages of seismic, gravity studies, lithologies, bugs, and coming up with an exploration thesis, which we did. And previous wells, which was the most interesting one for me as a banker, ex-banker. You know, we, we have all these previous wells in our block that some of them drilled much deeper than what they do in Cuba and returned a much lighter crude than is typical for that part of the world. And that got the geos excited. It got so, me tell me excited. why while we're here. Why, why is lighter crude, for those who aren't oil and gas gurus, why is lighter crude something that's exciting? You can do more with the longer a longer hydrocarbon chain in the refining process, right? You can get off all the really light end stuff and that goes to the high value products like your aviation fuels and then your petrols. And, and if you're starting at the heavy end of the chain of the hydrocarbon chain, then, you know, you're restricted more, you, you know, to your bunker fuels and your, your asphalts and your, maybe, your, maybe up to your diesels, right? So there's less, less product. To come off the chain, and the way that, that happens geologically, and I'll you know I'll let you, I'll let your your board light up with all the geos calling me and the petroleum <laughs> engineers telling me I haven't got a clue, but you know oil, you know how it gets produced, how it mm -hmm. gets stored, yep. you know in geological time, if it's at a certain depth where it gets trapped, you know so you know fifteen hundred meters down in some parts of the world, maybe deeper, the temperature goes deeper as you go down in the earth. And as the temperature gets hot enough, you know, 70, 80 degrees down, it kills the bugs that eat the light end off the, off the hydrocarbon chain. So it tends to be a bit deeper, the stuff that's of a better quality. The stuff that's more shallow tends to be the heaviest stuff. And that's what they typically have in Cuba is this heaviest stuff that's shallow. Venezuela's the same. So it's in this thrusted fold belt geology, though, you have multiple stacked traps. You know, you have like a, think of it like an upturned um, soup plate, you know, that acts like an impermeable barrier for oil because oil floats on water, oil tries to gravitate up and then it reaches these upturned soup plates or traps and you drill into them and that's where the oil produces from. And if that is deep enough and you can see these things on seismic, if you're good enough, my geos can, you can see them if they're big enough on gravity. And you put all that together and say, there's our exploration thesis. We reckon there's oil there, 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 and there, perhaps. And we want to put in a couple of drilling holes there and there. Then, then being a company that was our size then, like, you know, $50 million in size, these, these wells are going to cost you $20 million each. So off you go on the, on the road, Andrew, go and find us a partner who believes this thesis, who wants to come in and help us drill that well. And that took a few years, and then we ended up with the Son and Gold, you know, the National Oil. After, after many 
you know, speed dates um, and many uh, almost marriages, we ended up with Son and Goal. And they've been, you know, a great partner because they have believed the exploration thesis. They've backed us. They backed us. And then almost immediately we hit this COVID problem in the world. And they could have very easily just gone, you know what, all bets are off, boys. We loved the idea, but, you know, all bets are off. And they didn't. And so good on them. And we're, and they kept us as the operator because we're small, nimble, cheap. Uh, they know they're a big bureaucratic organization. And we started drilling in September of last year. So that was, you know, that was 21 September from maybe the first hints of a romance back in 2012. That was the runway to actually getting a drill bit in the ground. And then we drilled. And that's been a, an exciting success in that first well. For all of the talk about long-term investing and other things that people like me and others do, uh, a 10-year process of maybe we end up with nothing or maybe we end up with something um, is a remarkable amount of time. Can, can you share with me some of the um, some of the back and forth, some of some of the kind of the journey of that? I, I imagine you know spending ten years trying to get to a point uh, must be super exciting. But I also imagine there's a d- few dark nights of the soul and a, and a few kind of do we ever make it here? Do we end up having to fold or do we run out of cash or you know that 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 journey itself just to the point of putting a drill in the ground and we we've got you got some exciting stuff to, to share. But um, th- just th- that process itself. I'm, I, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to put myself in a position of, of, of starting today and in 2032 maybe having something. That takes a decent amount of faith, a decent amount of commitment, a decent amount of just, just kind of process, right? Getting up every morning and going through the motions, not, not, in, a, not in a thoughtless way, but, but just kind of keeping at it. Uh, that's, a, that's a long decade, is it? Or, or does it go pretty quick? Yeah, obstinacy is important. No, absolutely. <laughs> but, it, but it's not... Is that a polite way of saying stubbornness? Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> but, but you're not, you know, you're not putting it all on 32 red. Right for that ten years, we—it's a portfolio game. We're doing many, many things in parallel. We're doing lots of little deals in the meantime. We're drilling little wells here. We're doing partnership deals there. Um, we're selling permits that we've proved up and acquired to other companies there. So you, you know you're feeding the machine all the way through to because you have to keep your, you know the market believing in you. But it's not oil and gas only. Scott. You know any resource project has that lead time, right? It it, it doesn't just go. Oh, we're going to start a lithium mine tomorrow. <laughs> no, it, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And Grab a shovel. And you're away. Yeah. And it's not just resources either. You think this looks like a long lead time? You come and talk to some of my friends that are running, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies or biotech and <laughs> see yeah. and see what yeah. that lead time and then technologies, you know, that can that can appear overnight and disappear overnight. But anything that requires regulatory oversight and lots of investment and it's a decade plus. Tell us about Cuba then, mate. So you, you you put a drill in the ground and you think you found something pretty exciting. Maybe you could just share that part of the Mabana story. Well, the 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 exploration thesis that we had, uh, the prognosis for that first well, we put the bit in the ground. We got to about 500 metres. We weren't expecting any oil until after 13 or 1400 metres and we found found a lot of oil immediately. And, you know, when you find oil, that's not the end of the story. You know, you can you can you can find oily rocks. You can find very heavy stuff that doesn't move. What we found was oil that was movable, and like a Coke bottle. If you you know shake it before you open it, the more pressure there is in there, the more gas there is in there as you open it, the harder it comes out at you. This stuff was coming at us hard, and that was from the get go. And then we, you know, great, we're a success, but that was not even the 
the objectives of the well. So we still had to keep going. And then we found another geologically independent, massive accumulation of hydrocarbons, uh, which was even more pressured. And that still wasn't the main objective of the well. So we kept going to the very deepest target and we found another independent massive accumulation of hydrocarbons under even more pressure. So we now have three large reservoirs that we found in the first well that are very significant in scale. We're having independent assessment done on the volume of oils in there that we should have out soon uh, from a group that knows uh, the Caribbean very well. And we've now moved on from that well. We said, okay, we found a lot of oil. Let's finish the drilling program because we have a two-well exploration program we agreed to do with the Angolans. So we're now drilling the second well about 20 kilometres away into a target that is a massive structure underneath a historic, very high-quality oil field that no one ever knew where the source of the hydrocarbons were. So we've got another shot at something very exciting coming through in the next month or two. But even if it doesn't, we've, we've done that thing that is almost almost impossible most most people i know in the oil and gas game have spent their careers and never had a discovery we've done it we found a lot of oil and now it's time to go back test it appraise it work out the characteristics and mm. get it into production that's a uh it must be i imagine you had a few beers that night or maybe maybe you don't drink it but i, I if it was me i would have had a few beers that night i, I, I imagine you, you can't not drink when you're in Cuba. <laughs> their, Fair enough. their rum is superb <laughs> Were you on site at the time, out of interest? I was very close. I left, um, I, I, I wasn't, there was oil being found the whole way. So I was there for a lot of it uh, in, in various sections. So I'm heading back there again next week uh, to hopefully overlap with uh, this well when it gets to the zone of interest too. So I'm spending a lot, third trip this year there. So. Wow, right. Uh, curious, it's a purely, uh, you know, functionally, you you've, you found this oil in, in the first well and you put it aside and drilled the second well, I would have been like, oh, let's just hang around to the first one, see, you know, sort of make this one, uh, you know, make a monty of this first before we move on. Um, is, is it just a, a case of, uh, to your point before about the portfolio, doing different things with different wells at different times? Was it machinery and equipment availability? Uh, I, I would have I would probably been inclined to double down on, on, the, on the first one that seemed pretty exciting. Uh, the, the moving on and then coming back, is that just, is that just the process you need to follow? It, look, it's not cast in stone, but what we had was an agreement with the regulators and with our partners that we would drill these two exploration wells. And then, yes, there were there were voices saying, "Ho ho, look, we found all this oil. Game, let's let's game change." Oh, the thoughts are right. We're going to leave it there and move on. It's like, no, no, but back there, back there, there's some oil. But you're not you're not able to turn projects around in another direction on a dime you know there, there's inventory considerations there's contractor availability there's permitting and yeah we could have done that but it probably would have meant a couple of months of rejigging everything to do the next appraisal well and 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 in that time you know you've got a drill rig and a you know we're hundred thousand dollars a day people standing around <laughs> doing nothing right so and then yeah. we've got a discovery yeah we 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 can we all find it very easy to have people come in and pay us to help develop that field, whereas this the other one that could also be a monster, it's a it's a it's an exploration well, and it's not easy to find money for exploration, and we have the money for ex this exploration program. So, let's spend the money on what we said we were going to spend. Give our shareholders the biggest yeah, chance at the maximum spread of prize, and okay, if we only end up with what we found already, 
back to square one and let's get that all into production. Go back to this first world for me. By the time you get back there, if you as a, as a small player, and again, you know, for, for most of the listeners who aren't deeply in the oil and gas space, particularly in exploration, um, there's, there's obviously no guarantees, no certainty, or anything. You don't know the size of it. You don't know the maybe you do uh, the commerciality of of the of the well, uh, the overall costs, uh, the, the profit margins. As as an investor, I, I, that's what I do for a day job. And a lot of our listeners are investors. How how do they think about a business? And I'll, I'll ask you to be as unbiased as you can for me. Uh, how do you think about the the, the potential? ROI from a, from an investment like this at this point. I, I, you mentioned biotech. It feels to me like that. There's a stage one, stage two, stage three trials. Each time increases the probability of success, but doesn't guarantee it. Um, what happens next from from a production and commercialization perspective? And how do you suggest your shareholders or potential shareholders think about Melbourne in that context? Yeah, that's um, it, it's the same thing we do uh, when assessing whether the project's worthwhile you look at the volumes let's start with volumes you do have a you do have an estimate of volumes you know you have your seismic and you have your previous wells and you have your gravities and and you can say there's a there's a structure there that's you know and use all your high school geometry and you can come up with a volume of this cone type thing and then you can work out the saturation of the hydrocarbons from your well how much it migrates and the experts then put numbers on that with a probability and say look you've got you know you got 100 million barrels there all right so we've got a volume estimate one data point you then need to say well how how is that oil going to move and what quality is it like when it does move and come up the well bore, you've got data there, you can factor that in as well. And then, you know, the quality, you can go, well, what's the price of the oil? And okay, we're all excited at the moment, but we don't do our numbers based on on this. We say, well, what's the long term? Let's mean revert oil. What's the likely marginal cost of production of oil going out over the next five, 10 years? Um, you know, it's probably a hundred bucks plus, but let's say it's $70. Fine. Okay. Maybe there's $70 worth of revenue per barrel then. Uh, in US dollars, what's the currency risk? What's the what's the cost of production? And that's the other big variable. Now we have a Canadian company that's operated in Cuba uh, for 25 years, onshore, same as us. Uh, they're a listed company on the TSX, so they have all that same reporting responsibility that we have. And you look at their reports, and they have had a historic cost of finding oil and producing it in Cuba of about ten dollars a barrel. So, Gulf, but Gulf of Mexico is $10 a barrel. So, you know, so, so $10 a barrel, cost of production, let's say long run, you've got a $70 oil price, you've got a $50 margin in there, let's say, you've got 100 million barrels, you know, you've got $5 billion worth of profit if you can get all the other bits to work, getting it out of the ground, getting it on a boat, you know, getting paid. So, and that's the commercial filters, you know, they're the commercial filters. So, it's a very significant prize, oil and gas, when you're successful. It's a very binary outcome, uh, unlike gold exploration where you go in and go, I've got eight grams per tonne, you know, and I've got this drilling program that says it might be 12 grams per tonne there. I mean, you go in there, it's not grams per tonne, right? It's, it's, it's always going to maybe you're disappointed on the grade, maybe you do better, but it's, it's not binary like oil and gas often is. So oil and gas tends to pay out very big when it when it works yeah now let, let me let me ask the the devil's advocate question but also give you a chance to tell me why that would be wrong 
Um, you're saying there could be you know, X, and I know you're not putting numbers on it because you don't know the answers yet. Um, you guys are a $200 million business market cap-wise. Uh, the, num- the difference between that sort of number and the sort of profit numbers you just told me about are, are, are orders of magnitude. The market either doesn't believe you, doesn't know, is risk-weighting it, isn't aware of it. Um, again, I'll ask you to be as unbiased as you can be. I know you've got a, you've got literal skin in the game. You, you've bought some shares just recently, which is a pretty good sign of, of confidence. But but also, uh, you know, you, 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 you're trying out there so trying to, you know, stick up for your shareholders what, what is the market not seeing to your mind where, where is the gap for all of these businesses of your ilk uh, that have in theory found something but it's not yet reflected in the price what's what's the market not believing or discounting or or waiting for let, let me let me firstly normalize the, the the situation before i answer it here we are a week before june 30 people sell shares before you know, they want some cash to normalize that, especially with the tax losses a lot of people probably have today. Then there's the options we have coming up in September that are expiring at three and a half cents, which, you know, people have already taken a bath on their portfolio, but those options are so deep in the money, you know, there'd be some selling of shares to get some cash to exercise the options. Those two things take them away. You got this frightening position in the world at the moment which old blokes like me have actually seen a few times before maybe not of this particular flavor but you can see why the markets go you know oh dear um i'm going to pull my head in and i'm going to wait and i'm going to see and yes that might be exciting but i just want to see what's going to happen with the world normalize the the platform now i'll answer your question okay this company's got a big discovery it says in cuba Australians are some of the best travellers in the world. I mean, they pop up in every company, in every industry, everywhere in the world, often in leadership positions. But as investors, we have a very close mindset, I find, uh, about our country and our waters. I mean, you've got 250 million people just over the fence in Indonesia. And what sort of interaction do we have with them financially and economically? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. One of the um, largest populations in the world, too, by the way. It's and young, this, with a young yeah, demograph. Right. With yeah, a young demograph. Yeah. And, and, and we can't even get that far. So to be talking about doing things in Cuba or Africa, or, you know, I've spent a lot of my times on the London Stock Exchange with companies there and Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Don't care. I don't care where you are in the world. I don't care what you're doing. I just want to know, can, is it there? Can you keep it? Can you get it out? And that's a different mindset here. But again, your answer, I haven't. I haven't answered your question. What are people looking at? What are they de-risking in their heads about what you're doing? Well, can he make a project work and get oil out in Cuba and get to keep it? Can he flow that oil and is it of a quality, even though there's a lot of it there, before he then can get it on a boat and get to keep it? (laughs) Well, you know, from our ASX releases, we said, look, there's no problem with the flow. We couldn't stop it flowing. It was such <laughs> high pressure. But that's okay. No to have. That's com- yeah. It is comforting. But yeah. then they're going to say, well, how long will it flow for and what yeah. quality is the oil? Well, we think, we think, okay, yeah, we've got to show you that that's right. And we'll be doing that. Uh, and then can you keep it and can you export it? Well, I have conf- great confidence in that jurisdiction from my experience in doing emerging market deals for my career. But let me, let me give this vanilla um, answer. The US, yeah, one of the countries that has had one of the thorniest relationships with 
other than Cuba in that part of the world is Venezuela. And Venezuela has the world's largest oil reserves. And the US has had its foot on the throat of Venezuela for the last 10 years because of, you know, after Chavez, Maduro, you know, contested elections, but didn't like them, don't like each other. About a month ago, the Biden administration sent a delegation down to Venezuela and said, um, yeah, you know what, um, how about you guys start selling some oil to Europe to cover for the stuff not coming out of Russia? So they took the foot off the throat of Venezuela. At the same time, they have allowed increased flights and travel from the US back into Cuba. They've allowed repatriation of money from Cuban Americans to their families in Cuba again. All the things that got ratcheted up under Trump are now starting to, you know, it, this energy, let's work, use the word crisis in the world, is changing the global geopolitical order. And I think this is a very exciting time for a country like Cuba with its resources. So balance the answer that you asked for with that assessment of, in addition to my commercial filters and my boards that said, we can make this country work. There's that happening as well. Nice, mate. We'll, we'll, we'll bring this to a close in a few minutes. I, I guess the, the other thing you mentioned is you're not just operating in Cuba. We spent a lot of time talking about it because that's the most exciting kind of current present time opportunity potentially for Mabana, certainly the first and maybe even the second well. Um, and of course, you'd like to know, like, I hope both are, are remarkably successful. If they are, your shareholders will be well rewarded. Um, but it's not just Cuba. Are you drilling off the north of Australia, if I remember correctly? Yeah, we got a we got a very exciting project off just in the shallow water. It's called the Joseph Bonaparte Gulf, the southwest of Darwin, just between uh, Northern Territory and Western Australia. Shallow water, it's 50 metres. But what we identified there was a uh, type of build-up. It's never been tried before in Australia. But where these types of build-ups, called a carbonate build-up, where they've been drilled elsewhere in the world and when they have worked, they've worked big. And now this one we identified has as much as independently assessed 1.4 billion barrels of oil in there. And we did our normal job of saying to people around the world, who wants to come and test this and drill it uh, for us? And we did a deal with a Houston-based oil company, Fortune 500 company called EOG. We sold it to them last year. They, they're making a country entry into Australia to come and drill this well. Uh, you know, before the merger of Woodside and BHP's assets, they're bigger than Woodside, a company you've probably never heard of. And it, in they come to drill this well. Um, if they find something, we, we don't have to spend a penny on this well. And they're drilling it early next year. Uh, if they find something, we get paid. 10 million US dollars for every 25 million barrels of oil they produce from that field. And there could be over a billion barrels of oil in that field. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be nice if there is. It's a free kick. It's a free yeah. kick for yeah. us. So that's the business model. You know, we kind of keep delivering this stuff up for our shareholders. And yes, yes, I hear you. It's really risky stuff. Yes, it is. And But we keep putting them in the portfolio. The, the statistical game is, gee, one should work. Yeah, yeah. And and probabilities. I, I one of the things I will say, Andrew, and this is I, I, I'm not an expert in oil and gas, but the, the the approach you're talking about is not dissimilar to general portfolio management for any investor. You're talking about individual projects, individual potential wells or exploration sites. Uh, when it comes to individual stocks at, at an investing level, the same thing applies, right? You're expecting some will go really well, some will go badly, despite your best efforts, despite the, the risk assessment you do. You don't buy anything expecting it to lose money, but you do it realizing that it might. And overall, you hope the combination of all 
all your efforts, whether that's companies in a portfolio or, or potential wells or, or exploration sites in, in an individual organisation, ha- have the same approach. And I think uh, there's a lot to be learned, even if Alice's aren't going to buy shares in Melbourne or oil and gas in general, just that very idea of thinking about the portfolio and the range of outcomes and just doing that relatively simple, you, you know, we'll add, add, it to your, add it to your trigonometry in year eight maths, we'll add some probability. I think that's probably year nine or year 10, but the same kind of idea um, of just saying, well, okay, what, what risks am I taking? What potential returns have I got? And when that is in your favor, you do as many times as you can get away with, knowing some won't work, some will, and overall you should be able to make some money. You know what? So I've got kids at university, Scott, and you know I've got portfolios I've made them set up over the years, and they've been loving the last <laughs> few years watch, watching their returns, and now they're watching it crater, and they're going, why didn't you sell that? Why didn't you sell? I'm saying, look, because the game is balanced portfolio, you're young kids, 30 years' time, you're going to outperform any other property, maybe if not you know, art and, you know, Sydney Eastern Suburbs <laughs> property. But, 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 you know, that's the long game. A portfolio and the long game, fire and forget. Beautiful. Mate, that's probably a lovely point to, to finish on Melbourne. I'm going to ask you our favourite four questions, if, you, if you'd be so kind. Uh, no, don't worry, not, not too scary. Um, we, we like to know a little bit about our guests. So let's, let's start with a lot of people like to stream, to read, to listen. Uh, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment? What's on your Netflix, on your podcast machine? What's on your, on your uh, side table at bed? Oh, well, yeah. Reading, um, I, I don't read as much as I do anymore, but I do yeah, listen to audiobooks. I, I did listen to one recently called How the World Really Works. By some, okay. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it to anybody that right. wants a scientist's view of this situation we find ourselves in the world of energy, renewables and the like. It's uh, very accessible and, and very practical and with lots of data that's hard to come by. Is that uh, Vaclav Smil? That's him. Uh, I that's him. I couldn't yes. remember the name. Yeah. I think he's a, a Bill Gates is a big fan too, I think, from memory. Is so, that so? Uh, yeah, oh, Bill, Bill, Bill Gates will appreciate the fact that so he's, he's trying to be validated by Andrew Purcell, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I like the podcast, you know, similar to the audio books, I guess. But, um, you know, the podcast I, I find myself uh, listening to most times, it's called In Our Time uh, from BBC4, just an eclectic group of experts every hour talking about all sorts of issues from, you know, medieval poetry through to the atom bomb project to, you know, whatever. Uh, there's a couple of they get In Our Time and How the World Really Works, listeners. Uh, what trend? Are you watching, mate? Obviously, you're going to say oil and gas, and feel free to, by the way. But it just whether it's whether it's about your job, about business, anything across the economy, society, the whole world, what do you kind of got your eye on and going? That's interesting. I, I didn't know that was going to happen, or I can't wait to see where that goes, or, or what's really happening here. What I'm really thinking and focusing on at the moment, it's not just oil and gas, but oil and gas is an important feedstock to some so much of the world's industry and production. And this situation in Ukraine. Um, I'm looking at Sri Lanka and I'm thinking well, there is a microcosm of how things can quickly unravel for all of us when energy is so expensive that food production gets out of control, people are starting to go hungry, how quickly a democratic government fails when the economy fails and then the whole thing unwinds. And I think what COVID taught me and many of us is that this global model of supply chains, which allowed us to order something online and have it arrive on our doorstep you know, the next day, um, is not necessarily going to be maintained going forward with this different risk. So it's energy fed, but it's also fertilizer that is made from the gas that's not coming out of Russia and how are we going to feed the world and what's that going to mean for security implications? And yeah, it's another podcast, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. 
it's a fascinating one, mate. It's, it's a reminder that uh, despite the best intentions, the reality should always be, be first. I completely agree with you. Um, what advice would you give someone who is interested in a job in your industry? I feel free to go anywhere here. I, I assume you'll go oil and gas, but you've, you've, been, uh, you've been a banker, you've been a project manager, you've been an engineer. Um, maybe just what advice would you give young people who are, who are just entering, entering the workforce? Well, you know, if you're a, if you're a young engineer looking to specialise in chemical engineering or petroleum engineering and you're going, well, that industry's dead. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is by the time you finish your career. But <laughs> what's happening now is that there is a wall of money in the world going in the direction of renewables. And, you know, you don't stand in front of walls of money, as the banker in me would tell you. You find a way to make it work, and that's the tricky bit, finding the thing that is real. There's so much government subsidy going into so many of these initiatives because no one knows which one's going to work that as an engineer you look at it and go, well, that doesn't make sense. I'm not going to invest in that. But then you're jaded because you're at my age. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, and you've got a vested interest. Yeah. But if you're a young person yeah. who's got the fresh education of the best that you can learn and when you come out of university in this world where energy is going to be king, it's going to be king for you know, the next 50 years, I think it's not oil and gas industry necessarily, but it's the same skills, project assessment, delivering molecules, delivering energy, delivering jewels. It's a great, great outlook for your future. Andrew, let's finish on a optimistic note. I'm an optimist uh, by nature. I figure if you're in the oil and gas exploration business, you've got to be optimistic, or maybe maybe just a very well controlled generally. Time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, what are you optimistic about, mate? What uh, what are you what are you looking forward to? What what makes you smile? What am I optimistic about? Well, I think you know it's the world's got itself into a. Uh, a, a, a I'm very confident and optimistic that the next generation learns what the generation before it did wrong and corrects. So all the things that I'm looking at in the world and shaking my head about at the moment, I'm, I'm very optimistic, having seen that a few times already, that the next generation coming up, hopefully we've done enough to educate them and prepare them well enough that they can go, well, that's got to change and we're going to fix that and we're going to make the world a better place. I love it. The kids will be all right. Uh, Andrew, before we let you go, uh, how can people follow you, follow Melbana? Uh, you're on the socials, LinkedIn. How, how, can, how can people get in touch or, or stay in touch with the story? Well, Melbana's got a website, melbana.com, M-E-L-B-A-N-A.com. And from there, you can find our Twitters and our LinkedIn's. And of course, we're an ASX-listed company. So our ticker's like the month of May, M-A-Y. Uh, so go to the ASX, sign up on our website, um, follow the story more closely get in touch with me yeah, I'd be happy to have a chat if you have more questions anyone listening today and to explain why I think we're in a very exciting position for a company our size Andrew you have been incredibly kind to not only talk about Mobana which I know you do with passion but also the industry and to give us a bit of an insight into oil and gas and particularly exploration I have learnt an absolute heap over the last three quarters now so thank you very much for joining us uh, if you want to follow the good oil you can do that on all the socials at good oil podcast Facebook Twitter Instagram get us there but in the meantime thank you for joining the good oil Andrew Purcell oh, my pleasure thank you This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden and imaged by Link Kelly. Listener.